Hey, oboists, have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Effleuré of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox Products. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago selection, please visit www.oboechicago.com. You know how we're always in the market for good quality handmade reeds? Well, MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code double read dish, three separate words, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. bassoonist jackie wilson this is bassoonist jackie wilson (laughs) i will give you several more sentences to take note of my unique and not like my co-host's voice how are you oboist galit kaunitz i'm doing quite well thank you jackie wilson (laughs) (laughs) we're just trying to make it very clear who is who i know that we sound similar but it's okay anyway (laughs) Anyway, it's summer. It is summer. I am living it up in Michigan. It is so beautiful here. And I am practicing a lot and, you know, just living my life. How's your summer going so far? Very well. I just returned from the Lunart Festival in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, co-directed by oboist Laura Medisky, my very good friend. Wonderful. Yes, and we played three woodwind quintets by composer-in-residence Valerie Coleman of the Imani Winds. Praise hands. Oh my gosh, I got to meet her and just be like, I love your music and I love Imani Winds and you're awesome. (laughs) (laughs) But it was really cool and there was a lot of different types of representation. Um, Lunart, for you guys who don't know, is a festival celebrating women in the arts. So uh, last year was the first year and I loved being a part of that. And I felt like this year was even better because they delved more into different representations within the arts. Um, So more diversity in terms of there was stand-up comedy and there was dancing and all sorts of stuff, Um, but also in the women represented in terms of who were doing the creating. So yeah, it was just inspiring and refilled my well and super cool. That's amazing. So I'm glad you're back. It is summertime. And you told me you have a really good story about a memorable outdoor performance experience. And I want to know what it is. My most memorable outdoor performance, I was in grad school at the University of Iowa and I was playing in the municipal band and Iowa takes their muni bands very seriously. There's actually an Iowa band law that says every 
municipality must have a band. Oh my God, that's a lot. And so this concert, there was a vocal soloist and I forget what she sang, some Frank Sinatra tune or something, but we are closing the concert with Stars and Stripes. So, you know, the first time through the end, the piccolos have the great solo and they stand up and do their piccolo thing. Okay, so the vocal soloist, when we were rehearsing this, she like comes and talks to the conductor and she's like, I have a fantastic idea. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing good. Nothing good can happen now. I will sing the piccolo solo. No. Yes. That's amazing. You know, what's the point of Muni Band to make people smile and, you know, have a good time? (laughs) Um, So I recently had a very funny outdoor performance experience and I won't name the orchestra. Okay. I was playing an outdoor gig and the concert was supposed to start with Fanfare for the Common Man which of course starts with timpani and then trumpets. So then the second piece, so it was Fanfare for the Common Man. And then the second piece, I forgot what it was called, but it starts with this really loud woodwind trill. And so not everybody had a set list on their stand. <laughs> so when started the concert, all of the woodwinds had this really loud trill written. And most of us forgot that Fair for the Common Man was actually the first piece. Most of the woodwinds started playing this fortissimo trill. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was so funny. I rode there with a couple of horn players and so on the ride home. I was like, oh my God, can you believe that happened? They're like, what happened? And I explained it. They're like, oh my God, I bet the trumpets were so mad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, classic. That's awesome. Well, we had some listener submissions of their memorable outdoor performances. So I think we should dig into those. Okay. This I thought was so hilarious. Aaron Hill says, performing Beethoven 6 at Wintergreen in a tent. It rained loudly for the entire piece, except for the part depicting a thunderstorm. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Corey submitted a great one. She was in central France a few years ago in the courtyard of a 16th century chateau. She was playing Rigoletto. The performance opened on Flying Ant Day. There's a species of ant that goes nuts one day a year in mid-July in France and Britain and probably other places too. And this was that night. There were ants everywhere and they had wings. They flew in our eyes, up our noses, in our mouths as we tried to breathe. It was so awful. Somehow we survived the show, but the next night we opened up our parts and every single page had dead ants smashed all over the music. We couldn't tell if we were playing real notes or ants. Corey, this gig did not pay enough. Whatever it paid. (laughs) You were not <laughs> paid well enough. This is a literal nightmare. <laughs> oh, I don't know That's if so- anyone has ever made France and England sound less appealing than this flying ant day. I was like, oh, that sounds like a cool European holiday. Oh, no, it's just literally a day of flying right. ants. Pass. <laughs> 
There were probably people just in the audience sitting there covered in ants. Ugh. <laughs> Dylan says, <laughs> back when I was in marching band, my school did this parade in a nearby town. This town was very much a farming town, so a lot of people in the town would bring their horses. Now, the way that the parade was set up was that the horses and other livestock were in front of the parade. That's the first problem. And the marching band was at the very end of the parade. So not only did we have to march a five-mile parade in sweltering heat, but we had to dodge many piles of poop that were cooking on the hot Ah! asphalt. (laughs) I did not do marching band the next year. Okay, cosign. I don't even know what to say. My sympathies, poor Dylan. Cooking on the hot (laughs) Yum, that yum. Is so okay, Alex sent in playing Figaro Overture at an outdoor Mother's Day concert, and a strong wind blew my second page out of the clothespin and covered the first page only a few bars before the first solo. Thankfully, I had it memorized while the principal clarinet reached over and moved the page back. <laughs> Jeff, this was maybe my favorite submission. Jeff says, 4th of July Pops concert at a very large horse ranch in Florida. Hundreds of people. Outdoor concert in a large gazebo. No air, 100 degrees, and 98% humidity. Sweat pouring everywhere. Fingers sliding off every key. Sweat running down my oboe. My backside was so wet graphic but we'll continue listen it happens to all of us it does i stood up in the middle of armed forces salute because i couldn't take it anymore and the rest of the orchestra stood up because that's what they thought we were doing so we finished the piece with everyone standing Jeff is my hero. Jeff is my new hero. Yes. I, I just want to grow up and be like Jeff. Well, I think Jeff is obviously a leader. Not just a leader. Jeff is a trendsetter. Like, Jeff is a style maker. And everyone's like, well, if Jeff is standing, we all have to stand. <laughs> yes. Okay, last one. Jen wrote, starting with the word, ugh. Ugh. <laughs> it's going it's going well so far got hired for an outdoor gig in a small town outside of new york city and there was a heat advisory with temps above 100 the contractor told us to wear long sleeves and i said no then he kept stressing how there would be thousands of people there for our multiple performance the first show had about four people in the audience <laughs> it didn't get much better after that <laughs> Oh, indeed. Oh, it's horrible. I hope everyone protects themselves from flying ants on Flying Ant Day. That everyone brought an umbrella. Everyone dodges baking piles of animal parade remnants. (laughs) Amen. Amen. 
Hey, let's talk about Jenna Ingalls Reads. She has built her business on providing high-quality handmade reads, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reads, you get prompt communication, reads, or cane handcrafted to your specifications and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Podcast listeners can use the code DISH, all caps, for 10% off their first order at JennetIngle.com. That's J-E-N-N-E-T-I-N-G-L-E.com. Whether you're an oboist or a bassoonist, everyone is on the lookout for a great reed knife. And good news, Jenda Industries is making the reed knife great again with the Student Reed Knife by Jenda. Jenda Industries is known for its amazing quality and service in the double reed world, and in a world where the term student quality associates with cheap and disposable, Jenda Industries is winning by making the best student reed knife ever. The student reed knife features a tapered handle that will fit any hand size as you grow, a high-quality stainless steel blade that won't rust, and it's actually sharpened, you guys. It's ready for use right out of the box. It's designed to be used when learning how to sharpen. And most importantly, since it's a gender read knife, it is 100% supported by Genda. Plain and simple, the student read knife by Genda is the knife you'll want as you start your read making and adjusting journey. Add the code DRDGENDA, that's all capitals, no spaces, at checkout, and get 10% off any gender read knife, maintenance kit, read knife, sharpening book, cutting stone, or read tool roll. Visit them now at gendaindustries.com. Oh, and they're much more than just read knives. We are delighted to have joining us today on Double Read Dish, Russ DeLuna, solo English horn in the San Francisco Symphony. Welcome, Russ. Thank you. Glad to be here. Our favorite first question is to ask how you began to play the oboe. And I might like to modify that and ask, of course, how you started playing the instrument, but also how you developed a special affinity for the English horn. Well, I started music kind of on the... My father was a minister, and we kind of moved around a lot, but uh, music kind of was the one thing. I started in sixth grade on the saxophone, on the alto sax, and um, kind of kind of was just wanted to play in church and whatever, but um, then I got um, really into it. That's kind of all I did was practice all the time. So about, I think we moved in the eighth grade, we moved from Mississippi, no, Alabama. I was born in Mississippi. Oh my God. Yeah, I was born in Mississippi. Where in Mississippi? Meridian. Oh my God, I play in the Meridian Symphony. No way. Oh yeah. My God. <laughs> wow. That's so cool. I'm in Meridian like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, yeah, so I was born there, but um, we moved to, let's see, no, we moved to Arizona, like Phoenix, Arizona, right before I started school. So I started out there and then we moved back to Mississippi and then to Alabama and then to Ohio. I started uh, in Alabama on saxophone, and then I also started taking clarinet. And then we moved to Ohio, and my band director at the time said, you know, you're obviously very talented. We should probably, you know, you should probably really consider the oboe because I know your parents don't have a lot of money, and you could probably get some scholarship for school. And so I thought, well, that's sure. What's an oboe? So great. (laughs) 
so he sent me home with an elbow and a fingering chart and uh i fell in love with it right away and um he got a got a private teacher right away and um who was that taught at youngstown state university uh by the name of bud mold an odd name but um bud died a couple of years ago but anyway um so i took elbow with him for you know all through high school and um and then was uh, wanted really always wanted to be a performer. And uh, my band director in high school, Mr. Moore, was uh, kind of uh, a little bit concerned about that. He says, you know, getting on a job in an orchestra is kind of like winning the lottery. You know, you really should come up with a backup plan. You know, just to you know be sure you you know can work in the field of music if that's what you want to do. So I started out as an education major at Ohio University and um, wasn't really into it. I I, I I like the idea of teaching. I actually love teaching, but uh, classroom teaching really wasn't my thing. And uh, anyway, I just thought, I really want to be in an orchestra. I'm going to go for it. So I changed to performance. And soon after uh, my, so my second year in undergrad, my teacher left, Thomas Gallant, left the school. And he says, you know, you should probably go to a bigger school that's got a better program and has a good orchestra and da-da-da. And you should go study with Ray Still at Northwestern. I said, well, okay, who's that? <laughs> and uh, I was really, I mean, I had never listened to classical music before I went to college. So I was, it was really, really all kind of new to me. And um, so I went to Northwestern, got in and Mr. Still took me as a student and was there for two years and played in Chicago Civic and really loved being at Northwestern. So then I studied with him for two years at Northwestern and was going to do my grad degree there, but got married right after undergrad and my wife got really sick. So we moved, I dropped out of school and we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, at which time she was in the hospital for like a couple months. So I started studying. Well, I, I went to the Atlanta symphony. I heard Jonathan DeLoe play and a um, very different style of playing from Ray Still and uh, more of the John Mack approach and I'm um, blown away by it. I thought I have to study with this guy. So I called him up and I said, you know, I, I really would love to come have a lesson. He said, great, come over. So um, they were playing uh, Mahler 6 coming up, and I had just gotten lucky enough to perform Mahler 6 for the Chicago Symphony as a student, uh, as an extra, you know, because I was in Civic. And um, I thought, well, you know, my, I was pretty proud of myself, you know, and I thought, oh, I mean, it's Atlanta Symphony. I mean, I just played this with Chicago. They'd be, they'd be happy to have me, you know. So I go play for him, and he says, well, I, you're not going to fit in my section. You're going to have to change Ooh. everything about your playing. Ouch. Down to the oboe, the reeds, everything. Oh, boy. And um, he says, if you'll agree to do everything I tell you, without question, I'll take you. I said, okay. So we uh, we began to work and kind of rebuild my playing, and, and it was the best thing I ever did, actually. And then a couple of years, about three years later, I studied with him privately while I was freelancing, played a lot with the Atlanta Symphony and the Atlanta Opera and the Atlanta Ballet, and taught at five coll three colleges, played in five orchestras. And um, would take auditions, you know, once once a year. So I couldn't afford to take a lot. But, you know, I would get close in oboe auditions, but not really get, I would, you know, advance. Not all the time, but sometimes. And felt like I was doing well, but I was getting older. And I had a wife, two kids by then. And I thought, I've got to do, no, I had one kid at the time. So we, uh, my my teacher said, uh, or Delowie said, you know, you should, you should go get a master's degree. Why don't you go up to Boston and say Ralph Gomberg at BU? So I said, okay. So I went up there and um, studied for two years with Ralph Gomberg and 
he said he's not really the greatest uh maybe read teacher but he says your reads are pretty set you know he's he's just a great coach of music you know he's worked he studied with tabito and got that whole lineage going on and so he he was he was wonderful he was one of my he was one of my favorite teachers so then um after i graduated there i went back to atlanta because i had i had gotten a couple of jobs in orchestras that i was able to take a sabbatical from and um just started freelancing again and i was teaching at emory university in columbus state university and georgia state university and and um freelancing driving about thirty thousand miles a year on my car in my car and it was a lot of work and um i kept getting close like i said and so i'll just this will kind of morph into my how i came to the english one i was playing um like i said i was first called with atlanta symphony and playing principal in the opera which was a very part-time thing uh, played english one in the ballet orchestra and um principal over in the Columbus Symphony. So I was doing these things. I started getting work in the Alabama Symphony, who um, Jim Jim Sullivan is one of my best friends, and he's the principal of us there. He said, you should come over and play English horn here. We need you to play, I think it was Bach St. Matthew Passion. I said, okay. So um, I went over, and it went really well. And I didn't even own an English horn. I couldn't afford one. And um, I said, I'll just borrow from the schools where I teach, you know, and, or, or my students I borrowed. and um, it went really well and I thought it kind of hit me kind of started in my brain thinking this is really fun I really enjoy the English horn and people would give me all these great compliments like it's you know everybody liked my oboe playing but they're just like you sound really natural on the English horn so yeah whatever I'm, I want to be a principal oboe player so I went back to Atlanta I think a couple of weeks later after that Bach and uh, the Atlanta Symphony called me to play William Tell on English horn and uh so I played it. It went really well. Deloey, my teacher, looks down at me and says, Russ, I think you're an English horn player. And I was offended. I was very upset. Mm. I, was, uh, yeah, I, was, I was really disappointed because I thought, no, it's not, it's not what I want to do. I mean, I felt like it was kind of a, a slam. He says, why are you upset? You know, there's nothing wrong with playing the English horn. And it took me, it took me a couple of days to think about it. And I, I came to terms with it. And I thought, you know, yeah, there's nothing wrong with playing the English horn. I actually... It's kind of the best job in the orchestra in, in some ways. <laughs> anyway, so I started um, doing more and more. I got called to play two seasons in Atlanta, at, in Alabama Symphony, and got to play a lot of the big, big things. And I thought, you know, I should take, take an English horn audition. Well, I should buy an English horn first. So I got an English horn, took an audition for Houston Symphony in 2004 and was runner-up. I thought, why did I not do this 10 years ago? So, um yeah, I did really well, and and then I went and had one English horn lesson with Robert Walters, which was pretty revelatory and eye opening. And um, he says, "Why are you playing for me?" I said, "Well, because you're in the Cleveland Orchestra." And so uh, he's like, "You don't need to play for me." So we so we looked at reeds. I think I can help you looking at reeds. So we looked at reeds, and our reeds looked very similar. But he showed me a really kind of cool thing about finishing them that really kind of changed my life. And um, I took three more English horn auditions and one in San Francisco. So it's kind of, and I was 38 when that happened. So mm. kind of late, late in life, but I was not a, a whiz kid right, right out of school for sure. But it was, uh, it was a long road to get to where I am. And I don't take it for granted at all because it's a, uh, it's a real privilege to get to do what I love. So that's my long, long story about coming to the English horn. <laughs>
my head is buzzing. I have so many questions. <laughs> okay. What is it like to study with Ray Still? What is it like to study with Deloey? <laughs> what is it like to study with Goldberg? Yeah. I want to know about gig life. I want to know, like, <laughs> know the secret that Robert Walters told you about finishing yeah. an English word. I don't even know where to start. Jackie, yeah. correct me, please. <laughs> well, what was Ray Still? I'll start with that. Ray Still was... Um, he was tough. My first, I should tell you my story. My for when I first got to Northwestern, it's kind of a long story, but I'll be quick. They had no dorm for me. They had no room for me in the housing. So I ended up living in a lounge with three other guys that knew nothing about what an oboe was. And um, Ray still, <laughs> I remember my first lesson walking down to uh, where my lesson was all the way across campus and it was freezing. Went in, started playing something. He says, let me see that read. And he took it. He says, what is this crap? He says, go home and, go home and make reads. That was my first lesson. <laughs> so I proceeded to cry all the way home back to my sure. dorm and um, thought, what have I done? That was kind of my introduction to Ray Still. So it got better, thankfully. I, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> he was, he was kind of over my head, really. He was not Mr. Mr. Let's Hear Scales and, and Etudes and, and, and Do Reads. He wanted to hear Strauss, Bach, and Mozart, and uh, that's it. There was no I, – I tried to bring in – I said, can I bring in some Barrett or some Fairling? And he's like, no, I don't want to hear that stuff. <laughs> and um, he was, it was just very um, – he would have been great for someone who was further along. Uh, I, was, I was a little – I was not ready for him, <laughs> although I did learn a lot. I mean, he made us record all of our lessons, and I go back and listen to him now. It's like, okay, that's what he was talking about. But you know, years later. But yeah, he he was he was very tough, very demanding, and um, I did. I mean, my time there, I did. I don't know how, but I got into Chicago Civic, and that was really great. And I then got to sub with the Chicago Symphony. So those two things were kind of life changing right there. And um, that kind of solidified my uh, desire to be in an orchestra as soon as I sat down in the Chicago Symphony and heard Bud Bud Herseth playing trumpet behind me and Dale Clevenger and all these guys. And I just thought, I have to do this. So that's what spurred me on to kind of pursue my dream. So then what was different with DeLoe? You said he made you change everything. So what did you change? How did you work on it? Um, when I went to him, my, my oboe, I didn't realize it. My oboe was blown out and my reeds were, I didn't even know that you shouldn't tie over the end of the tube. Uh. After studying two years with Ray Still, I didn't even know that. So he didn't, he wasn't real helpful with basic stuff. And, um, so when I went to Deloe, he was just kind of like, okay, <laughs> I think I was an overhaul project for him. It was, uh, he saw, he could see that I was talented, but he was like, well, it's, you, you just don't, you won't fit in my section. The way you play won't work. So, and I actually ended up, he said, uh, look, go home. He took one of my reads. He scraped it like he made reads. He said, go home, make a read that looks like that. I said, okay. So I went home and I worked hours and hours and I came back and apparently I did it because he said, okay, I can work with this. So um, by the time Mahler 6 came around, I did end up playing it with Atlanta. And um, yeah, he, he was great. He was really great with Barrett and basics, you know, just getting me to think about a lot of things that had been ignored that I had ignored or teachers had not, you know, demanded from me. And uh, we went through the Barrett book and we went through Fairling and we did, you know, just 
tons of work just kind of solidifying what I needed to solidify. And he, he would help me. Uh, I mean, he was great. He was a great teacher. I wouldn't have my job today if it weren't for him, for sure. And then, and then Gomberg was, was, he was, he was actually like kind of like a father figure. He was wonderful. He was um, very funny for one thing. He was hilarious. So listening to him talk about music was just so wonderful. He was, he would say, rest. Music is a language, right? You say to your wife, I am going to the store. I will be right back. No, you say, I'm going to the store, comma, I'll be right back. He says, your playing has to have punctuation. You have to speak like, you have to play like you speak. And I don't know, just kind of things like that. that we're just like, wow, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Uh-huh. So, yeah, he was, he, and they hear all of his Boston Symphony stories. And it was, it was wonderful. Okay, so then you were a traveling, gigging musician in the Atlanta area. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah, I, I, I have many friends, that's, even the colleagues in the orchestra now, that were like, I don't know how you did that. I, would, I could never have held out that long freelancing. I couldn't have, couldn't have done it. What's hard about it? Because we have some listeners who haven't, who haven't gone, haven't tried that yet, or maybe are in the middle of it and would love to commiserate with somebody or like, like what was hard about it and what was good about it? Yeah. How do you stay the course? Um, It was, it was great in a lot of ways. I mean, I was in in some ways I felt like I took like three years between undergrad and grad and it was kind of good because I kind of felt like my three years in Atlanta sitting next to Deloey a lot and playing principal like in the Columbus Symphony which is you know a regional orchestra but it's, it's quite good and I, I played a lot of repertoire for the first time there and and it was wonderful for me and it was hard I, the hard part is just playing with different people all the time and driving around and playing different locations and just the randomness of it all is, is I look back on it now and I think God, that was that was tough but I also look back on it and think wow that was a lot of variety kind of fun too so mm-hmm. I actually I could have kept doing that the rest of my career and been happy but it was just I needed a job that had benefits and I wanted to you know I wanted to see the world I wanted to be an orchestra that toured and you know so what kept me going um what did keep well, my, my dream of, ha- of being in an orchestra that was just I would I would when I was driving to all these gigs all the time I always was listening to music or uh, some orchestra playing whatever I was had coming up and I don't know, just constantly, I was just inundated with in my, inundating myself with music and, and totally focused on getting better. Because a lot of times freelancers, some of my, some people that I met were a little jaded and, you know, kind of upset that they didn't get a job or hadn't gotten a job yet or whatever and could, you know, be very discouraged. And I just tried to keep the mindset that this is my path, this is what I have to do to get better. And I'm going to look at every job, every freelance job I have, like it's like I'm going into work at the Chicago Symphony. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what kind of what kept me focused. And uh, just knowing that I, I treated it like it was a real job, like it was what well, is a real job. But I treated it like it was my big job, all of that. So that while, and while I was doing all that, I was really trying. Like it's very easy to practice when you're freelancing. It's very easy to just practice for what you have coming up mm-hmm. rather than practicing to actually improve your playing. So I really tried to focus on being aware of the fact that I had to practice more than just learning what I had to play. I had to be working on my playing and the, and the chinks in my armor to get it to where I could win an audition. 
So it was tough. I, I will tell you, it was not easy. But uh, thank, thank God I finally won one. <laughs> okay, so my next question is, what did Robert Walters tell you about the <laughs> Oh, my gosh. Well, he was... He was so great. It was very funny. I mean, I, I, I flew to Cleveland. I rented a car, you know, went to his house and I'm like, here I am. You know, I, and I had a list of like three pages of questions for him, specific English horn questions. And I was like I, on the plane while I was flying up, I was writing down like, I want to know this, this, this and from, from a real English horn player. And, um, and I asked him all my questions and he answered everything. And I, I started playing and he's just like, you clearly know these excerpts. You don't need to play this stuff for me. I'm like, uh, I just flew here from Atlanta. I think, I think I really want to. <laughs> and, uh, but he's like, he, so I played, you know, I played for an hour or so, but he was like, look, I think I can help you more with reads. And he just looked at my reads and our dimensions were, you know, our proportions of, you know, our scrape was the, essentially the same, but uh, it was all about the tip, just finishing the tip. I was, uh, he talks about, creating a ramp at the end of the tip where it's I, w- I was leaving chunks on the end of the tip basically oh, okay but he, he would just refine it and refine it and refine it just scraping even off just from the very end of the tip all the way onto the plaque all the way across the middle which i was always taught was you don't do that mm-hmm. and um i started doing that and was like oh wow this is <laughs> my reads actually respond well good so yeah he was he was it was a big help that's really interesting because um, I was always told, and I'm sure some listeners are going to think like, oh God, that's such a lie. Why would you say that on the on the air? But I was always told that English horn reeds are just like big oboe reeds that are less finished. And it sounds like that is false. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was kind of told something <laughs> similar when I first picked up the English horn. But <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, what else can you do when you pick up the English horn as an oboist for the first time? But all you can do is approach it like it's a big English horn read, and that's what I did. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> like it's a big oboe read, I'm sorry. And um, essentially, that's what I did for a while. Just and then I started realizing the demands of the English horn, the the, the issues, the pitch issues, the the idiosyncrasies of the English horn are different than the oboe. Very different, obviously. And the read just requires a little bit different. I mean, there it's maybe a little thinner in the heart than on the oboe read, but it's maybe a little thicker on the tip, but. I don't know. I, I have to I say my my English horn reads are just as refined as my oboe reads. That makes more sense for sure. Yeah, I think, yeah. <laughs> and I thought they were big. I thought the a whole myth of other oh, easier to make because they're bigger. No, well, maybe, but not really. They're still hard to make. Mm-hmm. I find, you know, I, I, I love making reads. It's, so it's not really a chore to me. I enjoy it. But one of the other thing, big things that Robert Walters did for me, I have to tell you, um, you know, I had three teachers, two of which were, well, let's see, Ray Stoll, Deloey. They were actually all three very old school, like beat you over the head, insult you, you know, to motivate you kind of thing. Mm. Except Gomberg, although he could be, he could do that as well. But uh, Rob said, you know, mark my words, you will have a big job one day. And that was, that like, that was one, that was like the best thing he gave me the whole lesson. Wow. Was like, oh. It just kind of validated everything I was doing mm-hmm. and was like, yeah, you're, you're on the right track. Just keep doing what you're doing. And I, I have no doubt you're going to have a big job. Wow. That, I don't know. For some reason that just did it for me. I felt like he didn't give me any magic. There was no magic other than that. He just kind of gave me some confidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I find that I find with my teaching with with kids, it's hard to get them to have the confidence that they need to, you know, to really sing on the instrument. And it's a thousand percent. Yeah, I just so inhibited by the oboe, the instrument, and the, the reed, and all that. We get so caught up in, in all of that, rather than just you know remembering that we're making music. Right. So you stayed the course, and you got your big job, and you said that you love to hear Mr. Gomberg tell you stories about the Boston Symphony. So I would love to hear now that you are in the San Francisco Symphony. What are some of your favorite memories you mentioned wanting to tour maybe um, some cool places that you've been or some of your you know glory moments that you went ah yeah this is what I worked for this is pretty darn cool well I I have a very funny uh, first tour story and it's funny that we're talking about this because we're playing Mahler 7 which was the very first place I played in my job 12 years ago wow and uh, I started off the job with a three and a half week European tour (laughs) with Mahler 7 and I'd never played it before. And I had come out in June early, uh, at the end of the previous season to play it with the orchestra. But then I came back in the fall and that's when I officially started. So I had never done a big tour with an orchestra. And I think I took about 80 reads with me. And um, not all finished, just all in different stages. And just, you know, I was freaking out a little bit. And so when I got to, we, we started off in Edinburgh and um, got there and I just, you know, I went to see the city with a friend of mine and, you know, jet lag really hadn't set in at all. The first night that we were opening the Edinburgh Festival, the first night all I had played on was uh, John Adams' short ride. And um, that's all I had to worry about. And um, the next night was Mahler 7. So that first, uh, the next morning we had a rehearsal, I think at 11 o'clock. And then the first concert was that night of the, the Adams was all I played. So um, after the rehearsal, which I didn't, at which I didn't play much, um, I was getting real tired and the jet lag was setting in. So I went back to my room and I closed the blackout curtains and I, I was like, I've got to take a nap. So I laid down and I had a brand new watch that I had set the alarm on, but I'd actually never used the alarm and, um, you know, went to sleep and I was just out, seriously out. And I woke, uh, I woke up and then the clock in the room was on military time and it said 20, 20, Oh, uh, and I realized it's eight o'clock. It's time for the concert. So I, we're, we're right across. The, this is my first concert in my new job on my first tour. <laughs> this is the stuff nightmares are made of. So I am. Um, and we were, we were staying at the Hilton Hotel across the road from the, uh, the hall where we were playing. So I did an OJ out of, the, out of the building. I ran. I don't even think I put socks on. I grabbed my horn. I threw some clothes on. I re- literally ran out the door. And um, and then I the, I realized, like, oh, yeah, we're in Edinburgh. The traffic's all backwards. And you had to go, like, way up this way to cross the road or way up the other way. So I just thought, I'm going to go off across the road right now, right here, because it's the most direct route. And if I get hit by a car, I'll have a really good reason for being late. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so... <laughs> so um, I got over to the hall and I remember that the rehearsal, our personnel manager said, look, our, our wardrobe trunks are in the next building to the hall, next door to the hall. They're very hard to find. We'll have people positioned to, to guide you to where they are. So I get to the hall, Rebecca, and I, now the piece I play is third on the program. It's a little set of contemporary, three contemporary pieces. And um, the Adams was third. 
And um, I get over there. Rebecca says, "Why aren't you changed?" I said, "I I slept through my alarm." She's like, "Go get go get changed," so I can still make it. So I run next door. There were four flights of stairs. They said, "Go all the way down to the bottom. You'll see it." So I go down. I can't find it. I run back up the stairs. I can't find it. I did this like three times, four oh, times. No. Now, mind you, my heart's already beating out of my chest because I'm late. And um, so I run back. I really, I don't, I can't find them. I can't find my tux. So I go over to the, back to the personnel man. She's like, why aren't you changed? I said, I can't find the trunks. She's like, oh my God. So they, so they send someone with me. I go get my, I go get changed. I literally have no socks on. My shirt's buttoned up wrong. My bow tie's all crooked. I look like a wreck. I get over to the hall and the staff photographer says, Oh, I got to get a picture of this. Make the picture. Everybody's laughing, which I did not find anything humorous about it at all. So I go over to the, and now I'm, I can still make it. I actually am still before it's time to go. So I go stand on the other side of the um, stage where they're going to let me on. And now remind, remind you, this is the opening of the Edinburgh festival. It's kind of a big deal. So, and they, she says, we've told Michael that you're late. He's going to stop and let you on before the Adams. Okay, great. So I'm standing there waiting. And then I realized, oh, God, my music. I <laughs> le- had left my music in my case. So I ran and got my music. Come back. I'm still okay. I'm going to make it. And then I hear the woodblock that starts the Adams. What? So they, they had started the piece without me. And um, my heart sank. And I, and I had visions of a meeting saying, we're sorry, you're not getting tenure. Um, <laughs> so um, I, I, I'm standing there. The personnel manager comes over and she says, "Why aren't you out there?" I said, "Michael started the piece without me." I mean, it's. And she says, "Well, well, you're gonna have to go apologize to him." I said, "Well, of course." So after the Adams was over, I went over to NTT's. He was waiting in the wings, and he was kind of up up above me, and I was down below. And there was this stair situation. And I said, Maestro, I'm so sorry. I said, I slept through my alarm and I, I'm, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. He looked at me funny and he says, you know, I just hate that piece without English horn. Well, you can't really hear the English horn in the piece anyway, but he, um, I said, you're being funny. And he, he's like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He says, remind me to tell you when I did that to Sergio Vowell one time. <laughs> he, he was totally cool about it. Oh my God. So I went over to uh, a friend of mine, our first associate principal, Lobo. I said, what are you doing? He says, I, I'm done. I'm going out with a friend. I said, well, I'm going with you. Can I go with you? He's like, well, we're going to a gay bar. I said, I don't care. Let me go. <laughs> going. Let's go. You know? <laughs> we, had, we had a good time. Oh, my gosh. It was, it, that was my nightmare tour, tour story. I am so stressed out right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, really thought, I really thought I would never get tenure. I mean, but Michael, Michael was very cool about it. It was uh, <sighs> turned out being okay. But wow. Okay, so I'm a big Real Housewives fan, and at the reunions, they say you have to have a rose for the season and a thorn for the season. It always ends up going here. Well, I feel mm. like so that story was hilarious. It was a little thorny. And so can you give us like a glory moment, like a rose <laughs> moment, something that won't give us like anxiety by proxy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there have been a lot of those too. Um, I have to say one of my high points in my career thus far was happened last season but it actually wasn't with my orchestra. I got I got called the sub for Robert Walters in Cleveland. 
cool. to play all of Tristan and Isolde. Cool. And that was pretty much a high point. I had I never thought I would ever end up playing Tristan and Isolde on English horn, you know, the whole thing. And uh, that big offstage solo. And um, so they called and they, I, I had, you know, big stuff I was playing here. And they said, well, is there any way you can come? We really need you. And the maestro really wants you to play. And I said, okay, uh, I'll see what I can do. So I, they actually let me out to go. And I missed the first five rehearsals because I couldn't be there that week. <clears throat> so I thought, well, surely when I get to rehearsal, they'll start with, you know, one of the other acts, not the third act where the big solo is. <laughs> and um, no, Maestro says, uh, third act. English one go, and I had to go up and be in the organ works and, you know, play the solo off stage. <laughs> but that was, it was great. Oh my God, the Cleveland Orchestra. It, it was so great. That was such a great experience. That is that, so cool. That was a high point for me. And my high school band director and his wife got to come because they live in Ohio. So that, that is was, so cool. Yeah. So that was kind of a full circle kind of thing. So you are also a teacher. Mm-hmm. What do you prioritize in your teaching? What are some things that are really important to you that in the limited years that you have with your students that they take away from their time with you? Well, I'll I'll sum it up this way. Mr. Gomberg, and I get this from Mr. Gomberg. He he said to me, I think I actually, I think it was at the end of my time with him after the two years. He said, Rats, you came to me an oboe player. You're leaving an artist. Oh. And um, so that was kind of profound. And uh, that's, that's kind of the way I think about it. I, a lot of the kids, I, well, I, would, I wouldn't say I have mostly have graduate students. I'd, I'd say at least half, or maybe three-fourths of them are graduate students. So they're a little further along. And um, you know, I try to really Im- impress on them the importance of not just playing notes, but, but having something to say when you play. And uh, having and, try, and trying to move people when you play, um, so that's kind of what I try to leave them with, you know. Over, you know, aside from being an accurate note deliverer, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is what we all get caught up in when we're trying to win an audition. Just gotta mm-hmm. deliver the notes on, in tune, on time, you know, with a good tone and all that. But now that's the nuts and bolts of it. But when when someone really is behind a, behind the screen and they actually have something to say, that's that's when they're it sets them apart from other people. So that's why that's what I tell my students is try to, you have to say something every, every time you pick up the horn, you have to say something. Do you think part of that is taking the ego out of it? You know, being able to say, I played all of the notes is kind Mm -hmm. of an ego driven, like, look at how good I am. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about connecting with other people, then it becomes about something bigger. Yeah, I agree. Well, I mean, number one, our, our job is to serve the composer. So we're just bringing to life what this composer has written. And our, and it's our, our job description is just to, to bring it to life in the best way possible to express what, the, what we feel like the composer has written. And, uh, and of course, we give a lot of ourselves, put a lot of ourselves into that. But, um, I think it, it comes, especially in an ensemble setting, it becomes such a special and an incredible experience to sit down and make, you know, play a Mahler symphony with a hundred other people. And you have this part that fits in so intricately. I don't know. There's just nothing like it. It's, it's so amazing. So 
yeah, I, I just try to impress them on them how to ways that they can interact with the music and with the composer, even if they're not around, to uh, express themselves. And it's not about ego; it's it's about the music. Yeah. Do you have any advice for silencing that inner voice? Um, Because that's something I struggle with a lot. I think a lot of people do, especially in terms of how it relates to performance anxiety. And you were working toward this um, goal of a really significant orchestral job for so long that I, I would anticipate having a, this is it, this is my moment or, or don't mess up or that type of thing. And now in the job that you have it, you know, there are really high expectations. So do you have any advice for those voices in our head that don't seem to go away? <laughs> uh, the, the little doubt voices? Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, um, I, I actually was coaching some kids recently on um, getting ready for auditions and, and juries and such. And, and um, yeah, that's always, I mean, I, I deal with that myself. Um, yeah. I, I think, well, number one, the best way to deal with those voices is, is, you know, being completely thorough in your preparation. Um, the more prepared you are, the less, the less those doubts tend to have an effect. I think, um, yeah, obviously, the the less prepared you are, the more nervous you are. Obviously, mm-hmm. but um, I, yeah, I when I when I, I still have those those voices at times, and um, I just I just remind myself to uh, trust my preparation. I mean, and just and just take a chance, take a chance. And I've also learned, like, you know, being among world class players. I'll, I'll tell a story about uh, a colleague in Atlanta back when I was playing with Atlanta Symphony one day. And, I shouldn't say who it was, but this person played a, a solo in a Bach, uh, St. Matthew Passion, I think it was. And, and uh, one night it just did not go well at all. And um, I was sitting right next to him and he played it. And uh, he looks over at me and says, well, I guess they know, I guess we know which night they're not going to use for the broadcast. And, um, you know, I was just thinking if that had been me, I would have wanted to go, you know, crawling under a rock somewhere. But um, it was like, wow, this great player is, forgiven himself already for what happened and is just kind of moving on. Like there's no shame in it. Yeah. It's like, I mean, the more we realize that we're actually human and that we're not, you know, edited recordings. I mean, live performances, it's not about perfection. It's about making people feel something. And um, yeah, one of, one of the, one of the greatest compliments I got was uh, years ago, my daughter was in the sitting in the balcony she came to a concert, and her name's Taylor. She came, we were playing the New World Symphony, and she was sitting up in the balcony um, listening. But she was sitting by herself, and this older couple, she was pretty young. I think she was nine or ten. She was sitting there, and this older couple says, um, are you here by yourself? And she said, yeah. She said, well, where are your parents? And um, she said, well, my daddy's down there in the orchestra. And she, they said, oh, what does he play? The English horn. Oh, okay. So um, afterward, um, they, these people that were sitting next to my daughter wrote on the program how much my solo had brought them to tears and all this stuff. And oh. uh, I thought, well, that's, that's what it's all about right there. That's amazing. Yeah. So when you have moments like that, that's, that makes it worth it. Yeah. Are there any lesser played works for English horn that you wish more people knew about? 
Yeah, well, Rob Roy Overture <laughs> is one that we, we all we all have to play on these auditions all the time, but it's uh, never done. Very, very rarely, rarely ever done. Although the Brevard Music Camp did it two summers ago, one of my students actually got to play. I could I was like, "You're so lucky! You get to play this piece." It's like it never gets programmed. Mm-hmm. But um, this is beautiful duet with English horn and harp, and it's actually the same tune from Harold in Italy that the viola plays. Oh, but, cool! Um, yeah, it's a really beautiful, beautiful piece. Rachmaninoff, the bells is a wonderful piece that I don't, I don't think it's programmed enough. Yeah, I don't know that one. It's got a wonderful English horn solo. It's a, it's a piece for chorus and orchestra. And uh, I think it's the last, the last movement has this great English horn solo. Oh. Um, yeah, I had never played all of the the suite from Lemon Kaiman before we we got to play with our new music director, Rebecca Salen, and and among those movements is of course the Swan of Tunella. We played it in January, but um, all the other movements I'd never played, and there's some really nice stuff in that too. I don't know. It's just I feel like after 12 years in the orchestra, you would play, I, you know you feel like well you probably played everything. Well, there's I'm not I don't think I've even come close in 12 years. There's so much music to to play. It's unbelievable. So I feel like, you know, a lot of, some things are starting to come around for a second, second and third time, but you know, there's every, every, that's what I love about, about it. You're always encountering new, new music. And of course there's always new music being written, which is wonderful as well. So it's a, a great thing we get to do. Why don't you tell us about something exciting that you have coming up? Yeah, we have um, a member, a guest artist, I mean, artist at our Southern Oboe Intensive which is in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's uh, in the second week of July, I guess the 7th through the 11th. And um, it's uh, along with my two best friends, uh, Phil Ross of St. Louis Symphony, Associate Principal Lobo, and Jim Sullivan, Principal Lobo in Alabama Symphony. And uh, it's a wonderful week of master classes and lessons and remaking. And yeah, it's a, it's a really great week. This will be our fourth one that we've done so far. So uh, there's still time to sign up. So please do. And we'll link to that in the show notes so people know where to go. What advice do you have for a young musician that aspires to have a career like yours? Well, first of all, when I talk, when I talk to young people and they, like if they're not sure if, if like if they do oboe really well, but they also are really, really into math or some other science or some other area, I always counsel like uh, high school kids especially you know if there's anything else that you can do that you have a passion at uh, for um as much or more than music you know i you should i, I feel like you should only go into pursuing this kind of career if there's just nothing else that you, would make you happy because it's a hard road it's a very it's a very difficult thing to do and requires all of you to to kind of you know get get to that point so yeah, if people are divided at all in terms of you know a passion about other things or whatever it's almost better to do something else rather than pursue it half-heartedly like it's it's just something i tell my students like if you there's something else that you like better do that because you know this is this requires everything i mean so yeah i feel like it's just, it's such an all-consuming thing to to try to win an orchestral job. At least it was for me. So, 
Wow, Russ, thank you so much for this honest and open and hilarious interview. It's been such a joy to talk to you. Thank you. It was great talking to you guys. Thank you for joining us for another episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on all of the platforms at Double Read Dish. If you want to follow us individually on Instagram, I am Wilson Bassoon. She is Hello Oboe. And if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us wherever you listen, we're available on iTunes, Google Play, YouTube. Uh, We would very much appreciate it. Galit, who's coming up next time? Next time, we are so happy to have Alexandri Silverio, principal bassoonist of the Sao Paulo State Symphony Orchestra. You're not going to want to miss it. Jackie, it's time to end this nerd parade. Go avoid flying ants and make reads. <laughs>